This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Brandon Bernstein. Rabbi Bernstein is Moisha House's Director of Jewish Learning. Moisha House is an international nonprofit made up of a collection of homes throughout the world that serve as hubs for the young adult Jewish community. It provides a rent subsidy and program budget to Moisha House residents who then use their home to create their ideal Jewish communal space. In his role, Rabbi Brandon envisions ways to bring ancient wisdom to contemporary times, empowering communities and individuals to create new meaning out of their tradition. Brandon grew up in Palmdale, California, went to UC Berkeley, and received his rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College, which is where the rabbi, me being the rabbi's husband, also went. Before joining the team at Moisha House, Brandon lived in Chicago and served as the campus rabbi at Northwestern Hillel. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on The Rabbi's Husband, and I am very excited to discuss your chosen passage, which is one of the most important stories, not only in the Bible, but in all of human thought, which is Cain and Abel. And this, for anyone with their Bible in front of them, is, uh, of course, Genesis 4, 1 through 12. So uh, tell us uh, what happens and uh, why it's so meaningful to you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me. Excited to, to be here. Cain and Abel and what happens. Essentially, uh, we take our first human beings, Adam and Eve, freshly removed from the Garden of Eden, and they do as humans do, and they become intimate with each other, and Eve bears two children. She births Cain and Abel, her two children. In that order, importantly, in that order, Cain is the older brother, Abel is the younger brother. Yes, yes, Cain is the older brother. Right from the beginning, we get this sort of uh, established pattern that people who are familiar with biblical study, who dive into Torah, know there's constantly this conception within Judaism and within the Torah that in typical ancient Near Eastern society, the eldest child would inherit everything from their parents, of course. He would get all the privileges, right? Exactly, right. We'd get everything, and yet constantly the Torah is full of stories of the younger child sort of usurping. I totally agree. That's one of the most important lessons of the Torah, which is the consistent subversion of primogeniture. Right. And I mean, this is getting tangential already, but I'm constantly thinking also about the fact that the narrative aspects of the Torah are often in somewhat distinct contradiction to the halakhic or the sort of legal aspects of the Torah. You always get these ideas, right? And it ranges from Abraham serving meat and milk together to the angelic guests when they come to him. Absolutely. Abraham served his guests a cheeseburger. There's no other way to read it. Right, right, completely. And then you get rules, right, that like, it, okay, so unfortunately we're living in a time that is that is patriarchal when it comes to, to the Torah text, right? And so you get men having multiple spouses and Jacob has two spouses. There's a rule that essentially says if you have two um, two wives and one of them is less loved to you than the other one is, and but she gives you birth to your, to your first child, that's the child who inherits everything. And of course, we get in the Jacob story, he loves Rachel more than Leah, but Leah gives birth to children. And first, we constantly see these narratives where they just seem to be poking at the established rules. Right. And, 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 and every time we see polygamy in the Torah, it's a complete disaster. Yeah, very much so. So the, the proper order of things is actually established in Adam and Eve, a husband and a wife, monogamy. And then later it becomes polygamy. But every single person who's polygamous has disastrous experience. So it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. The good thing is monogamy. Jacob didn't have an easy time with Rachel and Leah. He had a very difficult time with Rachel and Leah, as did everyone else who was polygamous. 
yeah, there's there's a lot I think that could be debated as to as to what the the root of that problem is. But regardless, let's get back on topic. So we have Cain. He's kind of grounded in the earth, literally, because he's a tiller of soil. You have Abel, who is more of a wanderer, right? And uh, right away from the beginning, I mean, spoiler alert to what happens. Essentially, Cain gets jealous of Abel and murders him. I'm going to get into the story in more specifics, but that's what basically happens. They both make sacrifices to God. God seems to prefer Abel's more. God and Cain have this kind of relationship that maybe we'll look at again also. But ultimately what happens is that Cain gets so angry at Abel uh, that Cain takes Abel out into the field and kills him. And we get the first murder. We get these very intense relationships. But what I wanted to say and sort of the the spoiler of it is that if you're um, a lover of language, right, you can see it right from the beginning in Abel's name. His name is Hevel. His name is Vapor. We just celebrated the end of Sukkot. We just had um, Shemini Atzeret. And on Shabbat, what we read was the book of Ecclesiastes, of Kohelet, which is famous for its first line, Hevel, Hevel, Hakol, Hevel, vanity or vapor, right? Everything that fades away. So the whole point is that Abel, when we read the story, I think, and this I, I in part got from Rabbi Irwin Kula once upon a time, Abel is probably the guy we want to be in a certain way, all right? Like the innocent one, the one that's the victim, I don't want to be the murderer. And yet we're not Abel because Abel is nothing but vapor. He, he vanishes. He's He was immaterial from the start, right? And it's right there in his name. The reality is we're all Cain. We're the ones of substance. Cain's name um, is related to the idea of Cain of like acquisition, right? So his name is also tying into the idea of more permanence, a sort of weightiness to him. He's tied to the earth. He exists. Abel is the wanderer. Right. And and acquisition in the Torah terms is not necessarily commercial because we talk about acquiring the Torah, which it doesn't mean doesn't mean it's not it's not commercial and it's not necessarily the notion of control. We don't control the Torah, obviously, but we want to acquire the Torah. We want it exactly, as you said, to become part of us, to become our substance. Right. Um, so I feel like I, I went off and maybe went a little too deep into some things as we're, as we're, uh, we're going through. So yeah, let's get, uh, so Cain uh, kills Abel after a very interesting and instructive discussion with God. Yeah, very much so. So Cain brings an offering to God. Abel brings a better offering to God. And Cain's countenance falls. Cain's upset. And what does God say to Cain? And God essentially says, right, like, why are you so distressed? Why is your face fallen? And basically sort of assures Cain, like, you do right. If you do properly, things will go well. And if not, like, sin is waiting. Sin is always waiting for you to sort of, it's urges, right, as it says, like, it's urges towards you. So essentially, the idea is like, you have the choice, Cain. You can be doing good things or bad things, right? Like, sin is always waiting for you to be able to do it. And, um, you know, sin in this case, I mean, we just had the high holiday season. I think a lot of us end up talking about sin. You hear the word sin, and I think for a lot of people that are coming from a Jewish context, there's this discomfort with the word. It brings up all these resonances of um, sort of these Christian conceptions of like, oh, human beings being sinful from birth or something bad like that. And a lot of times in Judaism, I'm, I'm actually looking right. It's chata. It's it's sort of, it's about guilt. It seems to be related to the idea of like falling off the mark, right? That sin is not necessarily, in this case at least, about um I mean, eventually he murders his brothers. So that's a pretty big one. But um, well, because you know, right. yes, because because God says sin is at your door. And what's very interesting to me is that God says sin is at your door. In other words, God's saying to Cain, "You haven't sinned yet. Sin is at your door." So I think what God is saying to Cain is, "You haven't sinned yet." What might have been the sin? Bringing an inferior offering to Abel. But God's saying that's not the sin. I I read this as God praising Cain. Cain brings the first offering. That's a mitzvah. 100%. Yeah, Abel follows Cain and does what every older brother should want his younger brother to do, which is emulate me, but be better. 
Right, right, right. And Kane can't get out of that that perspective. He only views it as sort of, does this read bad on me? And if you pay attention to the language also, it doesn't say Kane brought a crappy offering. It doesn't say Kane no. brought an insignificant. Kane brought an offering. The Torah is very careful with language. And then Abel brings an offering that is like the first of his flock, the choice, the best, which we know eventually is like the way that God asks for sacrifices. It's It's the preferred way, but it doesn't I don't know. And maybe you could midrashically read it as saying, and this implies. But. No, but I'm, I'm, I'm a Karaite. I'm a textualist and a Karaite. And uh, and I don't believe in midrashic reading of anything, but, but and particularly this reason, because I think you got it exactly right. Cain brings a perfectly good offering. Abel emulates his brother and brings a better offering. That's what we call progress. God's happy with that situation, but Cain is not. Right. And this is part of what I love about Torah in general, which is that I think for a lot of people who haven't experienced it, they don't realize just how human it is. Like, I'm an only child, so I don't know for sure. But everything I know from my friends who have siblings, like, this is exactly what happens in terms of sibling rivalry. These are the kinds of things that happen. Oh, no, mom and dad gave a little bit too much attention to my sibling instead of to me over the fact that they got an A on this paper or whatever the thing might be, right? Or, like, I talk to people when I'm meeting with uh, couples with I'm doing the wedding and we talk and there's all these, like, tension around when did their siblings have a wedding and it was too close and all this and everybody. Is that right? Yeah, it comes up occasionally. I don't want to, obviously, I'm not going to share who, any details, no, but like, yeah, I, I think that there's just this this dynamic that exists no matter how old people get. There's always this sort of, for a lot of them, I think there's this sense of competition with their siblings that exists. And it's always about who has more attention from mom and dad. And it's- but I, I, that, that's a great point. I think this illustrates how silly and how ridiculous that competition often is. Cain viewing this as a competition is ridiculous. Now, part of the problem with being familiar with Torah stories is we, we assume we know what happens later. And then we assume that, that what happened later had to have happened. This didn't have to have happened. Right. This, this sibling rivalry is ridiculous. Cain should have said, Abel, you did a great job. I'm proud of you, little guy. Right. Completely. And, and going back to what you were saying about sin crouching at the door, right? Like essentially what that's saying, it's actually making me think of, right? Mitzvah, mitzvah, uva, avera, gerer, avera. The idea that like a mitzvah leads to another mitzvah and a sin leads to another sin. It's about habits. It's about habitually getting set. So the idea is like, Cain, you did this thing that's fine, but you're standing at a point where you're going to walk down a path that not only is going to lead to sin, but potentially recurring sin. I think it's exactly right. I think so sin leads to sin, mitzvah leads to mitzvah. Cain already sinned, which I believe God does not acknowledge, but Cain already sinned. His sin was in his misinterpretation. But I believe his sin was his countenance falling. Because what would have been the proper response, the right response, the good response would have been to say, Abel, I'm proud of you. Not only did you emulate me, you did better than me. That makes me so happy. Instead, Cain sinned by interpreting incorrectly. He was a bad philosopher, and that's a sin. So instead of looking at Abel's action positively, which is how any of us would and should objectively look at it. He looks at it negatively. He looks at it selfishly and says, oh, your offering's better than me. That makes me so upset. When instead of saying your offering's better than mine, that's, that's progress. Right, right, right. And then to, to take a moment to kind of, I'm going to go away from the biblical literalism for a moment and, and go out and expansive, but my personal understanding of sin has always been, I think in a lot of ways, sin is what distances one from God. Right. If I commit a sin, what it means is that it creates distance between me and God. And what is God right for people listening? I don't know if you have a belief in a personal deity or not, but regardless, I think that what God intends to be is something beyond the self. Right. It's the idea of connecting to some 
greater power, some higher power, whether that be collective consciousness or that actually be sort of a non-corporeal form, whatever it is, the point is that God is a connection to something higher. And so when something good happens for your friend, when something good happens for your sibling, to take the perspective of, oh, this is bad for me rather than I'm joyful for them, that is you disconnecting from the wider world. That is you turning inward. And therefore, that is you distancing yourself from God. That's why it's sin, not necessarily because like we have to behave in certain ways. Like I'm not a fan of this rigid interpretation. It's it, I think it comes out a lot more in relational ways. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I think this also teaches us because everything in the Torah is there to teach us something about how to live today, which is another reason why this story can't be about Cain murdering Abel, because almost all of us, thank God, don't have the temptation to murder our siblings. It's not a problem. So if the story were just about one brother murdering another, it would not merit being in the Torah. It must be there right. to teach us something about a challenge that we all have, which is not murdering our siblings. So, but the, so there are several challenges here. One of the things it teaches us is the indispensability of philosophy and of interpretation, that we have to interpret every situation, that everyone, whatever job we have, is also a philosopher. Cain's a philosopher. He could have interpreted this situation with the philosophy of generosity, of wanting to help Abel, of wanting to be uh, appreciative of Abel, of wanting to be encouraging of Abel. Instead, he interprets it with the philosophy of pure selfishness. It's all about me. Abel's offering is all about me. What, what God was probably saying, it actually has nothing to do with you. I'm actually happy that you had the idea to bring an offering. That was a really good idea. And then Abel just improved on it. But he fails as a philosopher. And I think that teaches us that about the indispensability of interpretation, that we have to interpret constantly everything in our world, and our interpretations are going to have massively important consequences as we're going to see Keynes does. Right. And and the difficulty here, what, I, what I'm thinking about as you say that is, again, it's written from Keynes' perspective. Why? Because Abel's name is Hevel. He is that which vanishes and is insubstantial. Now, for me, A, if you're a selfish person, then everyone around you is insubstantial and kind of goes away, right? That's what happens. And I, I honestly think that's what it is. Like, I, I'm a big fan of this concept that... Um, Oh, it was in the movie The Waking Life by Richard Linklater. I don't know if you ever saw it. I'm no. a big fan of the movie. Really interesting. I don't need to get too far into it, but it's basically a series of monologues and conversations all about the natures of reality and dreams and what's going on. And there's a line there by one of the, the speakers who says, and I think he's making a quote, essentially that um, realizing that you are a supporting character in someone else's dream, that's self-awareness right? That essentially we're all able to each other. Like you and I are gathering together right now. We are meeting over Zoom. We are connecting. We might never talk again, in which case- No, we're going to talk you, again. Well, I, I understand. But just for the sake of this like conversation, right. this is right, where it right, goes, right? right. Let's of say course, you and I course. never talk again. You are, I to you, and this immaterial, I come in, I have a bare impact on your life, or maybe a good, who knows what, right? But like I there, and then I disappear and you never really see me again. You are the substantial, you acquire things, you are the cane, and I'm the hevel because I come here and I'm here for a brief period of time and then I'm gone from your perspective, right? So I think part of what this is trying to teach us is other people around us may seem like they are nothing but hevel. They may seem like they are vapor, but they're not. The truth is we're all canes. And I think that's one of the tricks is that if you treat the world as though the people around you are just passing by and don't matter, you are likely to find sin couching at your door like Cain did. And you are likely to fall down these dark paths. Now, interestingly, I, I, I had an episode of The Rabbi's Husband yesterday with Pastor Max Wilkins. He chose Daniel 5 as his passage. And we made the assertion, let me know if you think this is true, that all significant dreams in the Bible are about the dreams of others, interpreting the dreams of others. Certainly it's Joseph. Joseph was interpreting the dreams of the Pharaoh. That was a significant interpretation. Right, but he started with, with interpreting his own dream. 
when he was a kid, but that got him in trouble. But he's able to advance when he can interpret the dreams of others. And Daniel, too, when Daniel's able to read the writing on the wall. And the queen actually references the language of dreams. Anyway, this is an aside, but it's just interesting because it goes, goes right to the point you say, which is part of what it means to be fully human in the Torah sense is to interpret the dreams of others. That's in the most profound, big sense, but also to acknowledge the existence of others is what it means to be truly human. And what I love about that is if you go into the Babylonian Talmud, you get this idea, right, that um, that a dream is one sixtieth of prophecy, right? The Babylonian Talmud is always obsessed with this. Uh, I mean, it's a base 60 number system, so it's always that. But the idea is that a dream is one sixtieth of prophecy. So it means that a dream is like a taste. It's a, it's a touch of it. In the same way that Shabbat considered one sixth of Olam Haba. Shabbat is a taste of the world to come. It is what, well, not one sixth, one sixtieth, sorry. So the idea being that there's all these things we have in this world that are like, they're parts and pieces, right? So it'd be like if you had a recipe, right? Like 59 parts X and one piece dream, that equals prophecy. So it's like a, a tiny touch of it. But what I love about that from what you're saying, that if dream interpretation is all about others, then I think about who is the greatest prophet in all of Judaism and the greatest prophet in the Torah, um, at least it's, you have Moshe, you have Moses, and Moses' whole deal is bringing other people to the land that he himself does not get to go to. And we usually read that as tragic, but maybe that's actually a strong statement about the idea that like, it's not about me, it's about other people. Right. Like if I want to be a prophet, if I want to be a good person, it's not about me interpreting my own wants and will and desire. It's about me interpreting the wills and desires of others. It's about me guiding them where they need to go. And that also explains the fundamental nature of a Jewish story, which is a Jewish story has no ending. Yeah. Yeah. And arguably no beginning either. Well, yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, just think of the Torah, it says in the beginning, but there's no real ending in the sense that Moses doesn't get to the promised land. And we don't know what happens. I mean, Joshua comes back, but that's not in the five books of Moses. So there's no end. But I think there's no ending for a, a Jonah, which is the greatest book word for word ever written, I believe, mm. has no ending. It ends with a question. Is that a Jewish story has no ending? Because if you're going to live your life by trying to interpret and to refine and to help to advance the dreams of others, of course, you're going to die in the process. Right. It's inevitable. Yeah. I mean, you should, right? You know, because you should keep doing that. And then at some point you're going to die. And it's, it's really, if it's all about the dreams of others, the world will go on without you. And it will go on without you, but with your influence, which is the, the, the great Jewish moral ambition. Right. Nice. All right. I'm going to avoid going down other tangential walls uh, or tangential roads at this point. So let's move forward. So God warns Cain, right? The verse right after we get this line, Vayomer Cain el Hevel Achiv, and Cain said to his brother Abel, and then we just get the description that they're out in the field and that Cain sets upon him and kills him. And there's, it doesn't actually say what he said. And this has plagued commentators for centuries. What was it? And so this ends up being room for all sorts of midrash, right? Of sort of like, what could he possibly have said? But going back again to one of my teachers, Rabbi Erwin Kula, he gave me something that I think you're going to love, Mark, given that you're, as you said, a self-described Karaite. It's what it says and nothing else. It's exactly what it says. He was so angry. He was so upset. That he didn't say, right? What what did Cain say to his brother? He said, ah, right? He, he like, he essentially, he had no words because so consumed was he with his anger, with his jealousy, with what was up. He didn't have words. And maybe the aligned teaching, which would also be aligned with charism, is it, well, really, which is really just textualist. All charism is, is, is textualism, is that the fact that it doesn't, it's massively important, exactly as you said, that he spoke with his brother, Abel, but we don't know about what. But maybe it's, as you were saying, when you're in anger or in jealousy, we're not going to dignify the content of your speech. It doesn't matter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It doesn't matter. We're not going to quote you on it. You're not, let alone quote you in the Bible because you're not going to mean it. 
It doesn't reflect any truth. It's just words and anger, and they're going to disappear like the name Abel. I love that. I love that. I'll also just throw it. I mean, for me, when I think of every bad fight that I've really had with someone I loved and cared about at the end, like there's often a time when I open my mouth to say something and nothing comes out because I just, I don't know how to articulate it. And maybe that's, maybe that's a blessing, right? Cause I know also for so many of us in fights, we say things that it's like, God, if only I could take the back, if only if I could pull that back. Right. But I just think it's so real and so human. Again, that experience of in the midst of the heat and anger to open your mouth to say something, but then nothing come out. Like I love the interpretation that it doesn't matter what you say. And I also love the interpretation that no words were said because it was just this moment of I love that too. I mean, well, of course, there are seventy ways to read every Torah passage, and uh, but I think this shows just the power of textualism. We don't have to invent what something he did say because the fact the, the silences are very articulate too and very meaningful. Yeah, very much so. Right, every word like really counts. Every detail, every silence, every moment. So Cain sets upon his brother. He kills him, and then we have God and Cain interact again, and. God comes at Cain with a question similar to what, right? Like, I don't know if in, on your podcast you've covered Adam and Eve in the garden, but of course, after Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden fruit, they hide from God and God has to say, Ayeka, where are you? This is exactly the Adam and Eve story. Just, it, it's a repeat with different characters. 100%, right? It's a it's a slightly different stand, but it's the exact same thing. Not only is it, it's the human story, which repeats itself over and over again. It's the familial story, right? I remember learning in rabbinical school about family systems, and it's really eerie sometimes as you get to know families and see that there are repeating patterns, right? I mean, this is something that's fascinated the human psyche for centuries. Gabriel Garcia Marquez writes about it in books like 100 Years of Solitude. You see these sort of repeating patterns throughout historical generations. I've seen it in my own life. There are so many ways where things will happen to me, and I'll look back and be like, oh my God, my dad was the same way, right? So you, we, we repeat the stories of the past generations. Which is one of the reasons why the Torah is so powerful, because it's the same story. We have the same challenges. We have the same opportunities as did our ancestors as recorded in the Torah. Right. And I mean, this is the first of many pairs of siblings that do not get along, right? Like after this, we're going to get um, Ishmael and Isaac do not get along. And we're going to get to Jacob and Esau who do not get along. And it's Joseph and his brothers do not get along. And th But then... The difference is that they're the brothers that are able to restore the relationship. And arguably, I guess we don't really get into brothers that fully get along, or at least, the, I mean, maybe by Ephraim and Menasha, by Moses' children. Well, no, Ephraim and Menasha. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Moshe and his brother and sister have their moments, but Ephraim and Menasha. But, but, but let's get back. I'm so interested to hear your take on what happens next in the text, the Cain text. So what God says to Cain is, where is your brother? And Cain responds with probably one of one of the better known lines of the Torah, right? Which is essentially, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper, right? Like, how should I know? Should I be the one in charge? And of course, the irony of it is, is that even though it's a rhetorical question, the actual answer is yes, you are. Of course you are. That's the whole point of the story in so many ways. It's what we were talking about. It's about guiding others and protecting others and taking care of others. Of course you are your brother's keeper, not in the way of, keep him locked down and know what he's doing all the time. But in the idea of you are ultimately responsible for him. Well, yes, and this is such an important line. Um, help me out with the Hebrew for keeper. Like, is that the right translation? That's certainly the familiar one. Is that the right translation? Yeah, I mean, I guess one other option might be. Like, what, what's the Hebrew word? 
Yeah, so the Hebrew word is shomer, which is the same word that you might hear if you've heard of someone. It can mean guardian, it can mean keeper. So ways that we've seen shomer. If someone is shomer Shabbat, they are observing Shabbat. They are keeping Shabbat. If someone is shomer negia, they don't touch somebody of the opposite sex or gender. And so they are guarding themselves from touch. Negia is touch. If somebody is a shomer, when someone has died, a shomer is a guard for that body um, over the period of time until they're until they're buried. So keeper, guard, observer, it can mean all of these things. But I guess the one thing they all have in common is, am I responsible for my brother? It would be another way of saying it. And the answer is absolutely. I definitely think that would be, if I were to translate this, not literally, but based on the meaning that I think is there, I think it would be, am I responsible for my brother? Interesting. Okay. But that's my interpretation, right? Um, no, but, but I mean, all, all translations interpretation, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why it's so great to be able to know the, the original language, to be able to dive in so that you can get some sense and at least come to your own interpretation rather than being at the mercy of someone who interprets for you. It's wonderful to learn from them. And it's also great to be able to dive in. So yeah, we get the, I, I don't know, it just, it hits me every time the sort of, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And I think part of the reason is, and maybe you're picking up on this, I love being able to just read what it's like to be human. I think that this text comes so much more alive when I think, well, if I was here and I was doing this, why would I be responding? And the answer is because I know when I mess up, when I do something that I regret, I sometimes take it out on other people. I'm not proud of it. I don't like the fact I do it. Well, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did, right? Why did you eat from the fruit? Because the woman told me. Then to Eve, why did you eat from the fruit? Because the snake told me. Right. And Cain, what we see here is that he still hasn't learned from the first interaction with God. The first time Cain brings a wonderful offering, Abel brings a better offering, and Cain just reads it as, this is a reflection on me being bad. And here again, Cain is avoiding responsibility. Cain is not taking responsibility. And he's basically trying, saying anything to be able to be like, well, why should I be right responsible for it? He's, he's, he is caught up in protecting his reputation rather than owning his deeds. So Cain, his sin is, of course, killing his brother, but that's, as you said, sin follows sin, misfollows. His predecessor's sin was not a sin of action, but a sin of character, and that he's a total narcissist. He interprets his brother's superior offering in comparison to his own. He's saying, I'm not responsible for my brother, and if I'm not responsible for my brother, I'm not responsible for anybody. So that's his sin. It's a sin of character. Yeah. Which may be the worst kind of sin, because and that is why I believe, if, so the Ten Commandments, or the 10 words, but we, we know the 10 commandments. The nine commandments are all about action, murder, stealing, idolatry. The 10th commandment's about character, coveting. Right, and there's all sorts of discussion and, and question over how can there be a commandment around character and emotion and, and about feeling, right? Can you really... But there is. The discussion's interesting, but the fact is there is, so there can be. And, and, and also, how we're, you know, we're commanded so often to love, to love God, to love the stranger, to love the neighbor. Man, it's, there's nothing we're commanded to love. And some people might ask how, well... We are, so let's go figure it out together. But uh, we are commanded to love. Yeah, I think there's, uh, in the in the Torah women's commentary, there's a really great note that sort of acknowledges that at least when you see the commandment to love, they have to, and it's connected to the preposition lamed, so they have to la, that it's often used in conjunct or in examples implying action. So to love might not be a feeling, but rather to behave in a loving way towards someone. And what would be to behave in a loving way would be to, you know, behave, you know, mercifully and kindly and doing good deeds for them. And, and it, it, you know, Very interesting. But another thing Judaism will teach is that uh, there's this uh, great story of the Hobbit Haim, who was asked by a young man, he said, the young man said, I'm going to work in the bank. Should I work at the part of the bank that gives money out or takes money? He said, work in the part of the bank that gives money out because then you will become a giver. So 
if you do something enough, you will become that kind of person. So there may not be that big a difference between you shall love or you shall act lovingly, because if you act lovingly, pretty soon you're going to love. Right. No, exactly. And I think that's the point is when people say, how can you command how I feel? Well, perform with the body and the mind and the, the, the interior will follow, right? Like we will follow what we do. And that gets back to what we have here, right? Of God warning Cain, you're at a crossroads, buddy. If you go down a certain way and behave, your body's going to fight. Like, like there are certain inescapable consequences, not because I'm coming at you with the hammer of judgment and justice, but because that's just how humanity behaves. If you go and behave in a good way, if you were to just say, and even like begrudgingly say to your brother, mazel tov, great job. So proud of you, right? Like eventually you will feel it if you keep saying it. And if you go in the direction of, well, I'm just going to cross my arms and be upset about this, right? Like you're just going to stew in that disgust for your brother and that hate and that sin. And that's what's going to lead to things like killing somebody. Absolutely. And another thing that's very interesting here is God gives Cain all he needs to realize that he's on the path to sin. God says sin is crouching at your door he is telling Cain, reevaluate your interpretation, consider your philosophy again. And Cain doesn't do it. I mean, if God says, Cain, like, what, what are you doing? Sin is crouching at your door. Most of us, we would hope, would say, well, let me take stock of that and evaluate who I am that I brought to that position where sin's at my door. And I certainly don't want to have sin come into my home. It's at my door. But Cain never reevaluates. He never thinks, he never considers. He's never contemplative. Instead, he just acts and acts murderously, which I think shows the durability of a philosophy, even a bad philosophy. Even when God himself challenges Cain's philosophy, Cain does not relent. He sticks with it. His anger doesn't dilute one iota. In fact, he just makes it murderous. Right, right. Now, there is a, re a way of reading all of the Torah, right? Or, or at least the beginning of, of Genesis. And one of the ways I like to read it is that although it's dealing with adult characters, it's kind of talking about humanity in stages the way that it would be looking at an individual. So Adam and Eve discovering their nakedness and sort of eating from the, the fruit of knowledge, in a way, that is a story of sexual awakening. As children, we all have a point where we're completely, we have no shame about being around naked in front of our parents about anything, right? The body is not a shameful thing. It just is, right? And eventually we hit a point of, maturation of knowledge, et cetera, where suddenly we become aware of ourselves. We become aware of sexuality. We have to hide ourselves. We have to cover up in that. And so Adam and Eve's story in some ways is about that growth and about that moment and about the shame that somehow gets internalized around um, the sexual acts in the body. So if we look here, right, this is still in humanity's infancy, or at least their childhood. And while I do not have children myself, in my interactions with children and seeing friends of mine who are parents, kids don't have the self-reflection you're talking about. There's a way in which Cain is philosophically and developmentally a child. He gets angry. He views everything as sort of being around himself. He doesn't yet recognize that other people matter. And the way that children learn, right, is that child hurts other child, child sees the face of other child in pain, child starts to learn empathy and is like, oh, oh, I wouldn't want that hurt. Like that, that's the unfortunate reality of how development works. So I think there's something here also just about the idea that the text is kind of also just showing us it's a philosophical mistake, but it's also, it's an immaturity. Well, but it, it, I believe it's an adult immaturity because God does punish Cain. Yes. And, and this mirrors what you were saying before, the Adam and Eve story, because he's getting exiled in exactly the same way that his parents got exiled. So God's exiling him in exactly the same way. Now, if a child makes a mistake because a child doesn't know any better, we're not going to get the kid in trouble. But God gets Cain in trouble. So God is holding Cain to a pretty high and appropriate standard of moral accountability. 
I'm just thinking my own childhood and and hopefully I'm not revealing too much about it. But I've had moments where my parents would tell me like, like I, I would get uh, reprimanded for a behavior and sort of told like that, you can't do that again. And then I would do it again because I was a kid and I would just sort of do, right? And like, that's what I was thinking about is the childness of, of Kane being told, sin couches at your door, like don't behave this way again. And then he just goes and does it. And then he goes too far. And then, right, especially because what we're going to get to is not only does God punish Cain. And so basically makes Cain an, an endless wanderer, constantly wandering around the world and that uh, being cur- more cursed than the ground, right? There's this beautiful idea of, oh, and I'm going to get into verse 10 in a moment, but there's this beautiful, right? Like your brother's blood is crying out to me. And so it's punished. But by verse 13, Cain cries out, right? My punishment is too great to bear, right? Like it, it, that, that is again, such a human moment that when you get punished, this feeling and this realization of, oh my God, that is larger than I can actually carry. That is more than I can deal with. I, I'm so, like, that just feels, although I've never murdered someone and, you know, don't, don't like God willing, never will. But like that, that feeling of, I did something and I accidentally went too far. And now this punishment just feels heavier than it's possible. Like I've had that moment as a child, right? I've had those moments of like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, so I was just thinking of that. Let's go back for a second. So verse 10, right? And it's it's impossible not to bring up the Midrash while we're going into it. There's this beautiful thing that, um, so God says, basically after Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible? God just like throws down. God's not going to be playing around anymore. God just says, what have you done? Of course I know what happened. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The Hebrew is kol demei achicha the voice of your blood's brother. But what's beautiful in the Hebrew, of course, is that the Hebrew being used, demay, is actually plural. So there's a beautiful Midrashic interpretation that, right, like I'm sure you know, um, but we'll say it for our listeners, that essentially says, because it's technically the bloods of your brother, what it's implying is not only your brother, but also any future generations that may have come from your brother, right? That in killing your brother, you have not only life, but you have taken all the life that he might have one day given issue to. Right. So it's an entire future possibility crying out to you. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, Alan Dershowitz points this out when he reflects on the Holocaust. He says, you know, how many great medical cures, how many great innovations, how many great teachers do we not have? Right. Countless, unknowably countless. I mean, just the, the, the tragedy is overwhelming among so many other aspects of the tragedy, but even just that aspect of the tragedy, because it's the bloods. It's not just the blood, which is tragic enough. It's the bloods. It's the plural. And that's what God's teaching us here. Right. And that's getting back again to Hevel because them more than anyone, Abel at least was around, but all of his future generations, that's the true misty vapor evaporating nothingness of Hevel, right? It, it might've been, but never was. That's right. That might be the vapor. Right. All that might've been, but that never was, and that we'll never know. Right. And that's really difficult to mourn and to let go of, right? I'm, I mean, at this point, and I'm flying off, which I often do in Torah study, but I'm thinking of, of um, I feel like I've had a lot of friends of mine recently who um, have had miscarriages of some sort, and they've dealt with how do I, how do I mourn the loss of something that almost was, but never quite was, how, right? Like, I feel like, like when my dad died, I went through an entire mourning process, and then I had a conversation with a friend of mine who lost uh, a child before giving birth and was like, I never got to meet this child. I never got to actually like see them, right? Like, 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 how do I get through mourning? I can't do it the way that you did. I didn't have a person to say goodbye to in the same way, right? And so like, that's, that's again, the hevel in a certain way. Obviously there was a, a material body that existed at one point, but um, yeah, it's really difficult to say goodbye 
to the potential or the ideas and making it in a sort of less heavy way. I think anytime that people have the thing, when this pandemic started, all of us had these ideas and these visions of what 2020 might have been and the hopes we had and things we wanted to do and the places we wanted to travel. And then all of a sudden COVID strikes and the lockdown starts and slowly you saw people saying goodbye to their vision of what they thought the world would be, right? Get, saying goodbye to that vision of the heavens. It all, like, I thought it was going to happen, but if it hasn't happened, it's ultimately paper. Right. But I, I think a distinction there would be, God willing, we'll resume to whatever adjusted normalcy is at some point relatively soon. But here it's the bloods. It's exactly you said. It's so important, the plural. It's the tragedy of what will never be and can never be Cain, because if you're one act, and as we think about now, Cain's one act of murder, however many thousands of years ago, the bloods, I mean, maybe Abel's ancestors would have cured, you name it, but we'll never know. They were never given the opportunity. And interestingly and importantly in the story, Abel never gets married. Like, it's not like he was married and this happened. I think that's part of the point. Yes, very much so. It's not because if God forbid, you know, Abel had been a father and was married, and wasn't going to have any more kids, then the bloods argument would be weakened. Right. Right. But here he, he, he was he was murdered before he had any kids. There 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 are there are no offspring. So we don't know what gifts Abel's descendants would have brought the world and seeing the path of what happens, which is ultimately we go 10 generations later to the time of Noah and God deciding to flood every deciding to flood everything. Right. Would Abel's descendants somehow have redeemed humanity? Would Abel's descendants somehow have done something different? We'll never know. But it's a persistent question. It's a, that's a great that's a great point, you know, and because. God destroys, decides to destroy the humanity within Bereshit, within the first Parsha. Of course, the, the Parsha wasn't baked into the original Torah, but whatever. In the first Parsha, basically right after this, God decides to destroy the world, which makes the question inescapable. Could Abel's descendants have saved the world? I mean, God found Noah redeemable, so he could have easily found somebody else redeemable, and that could have been one of Abel's descendants, and there weren't, wouldn't have been that many people around at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's a powerful and heavy thought, because then if you sort of bring it out, could Abel's descendants have redeemed the world? And then it brings us to anybody that we disagree with, right? Okay, maybe that person who I think is a schmuck really is a schmuck. But what if their kids, right, could do something amazing for the world? Could, could like, literally the redemption of the world could depend upon someone to come from them. Like, all of this is reason to, uh, right, like, that's why you got to, like, save every life that you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then that, that's why saving a life is the highest commandment in Judaism. I mean, you know, I'm the chairman of Echut Hatzalah, United Hatzalah, and people say, so your volunteers will violate the Shabbat to save a life. I said, no, our, our volunteers will fulfill the Shabbat to save a life because it's not violating anything. You're fulfilling everything when you go save a life. Yeah, there's the, the the teaching and the idea that like these these are all rules that we should live by them, not die by them. Exactly. Right? You don't follow the rules so that a life can be lost. You follow them so that a life can be saved. And right. Right. So yeah. so so we, we give life to every rule when we save a human life, a physical life, not a spiritual. I, I, yeah, exactly. It's saving a life. And 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 now we're beginning to see why in early Genesis, because Abel's descendants could have saved the world then and now. So of course we have to we have to fulfill every commandment to stop any commandment to save a life. Of course we have to. The, the answer is given, the explanation is given right here in early Genesis. Right, right, right. If you pay attention, you can find, it's almost like the rabbis were, were close readers and knew what they were doing and not just making stuff up. So verse 11, right? And I, I love this also. God says to, to Cain, 
you shall be cursed, more cursed than the ground, which is a callback to the immediate preceding chapter, right? That after you were just saying it's the same story, it very much is because when Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden fruit, God essentially punishes all of them. And one of the punishments is the earth shall be punished, shall be cursed on your behalf, Adam. Because of what you've done, I'm going to curse the earth. And this is what sort of leads to the idea that you have to till and you have to labor to be able to, to make things grow, right? Otherwise, maybe we've lived in this fantasy world where, uh, where things just sort of grew naturally and we didn't have to do work of farming, et cetera. But now we get so bad was what you did, Cain, that arurata minha adama. You shall be even more cursed than the ground. But also, right, there's this wonderful play that the first human being, the word for ground in Hebrew is adama, which of course is linked to adam. So there is some play here. Not only are you more cursed than the, gr- than the ground, you're more cursed than adam, your father. That just sort of hit me right now as we were looking at it. I, I don't know if anyone plays with it. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely an implication of it. Fascinating. So what God is basically saying is you could have been uh, you could have been better than your brother. Instead, you're worse than your father. Oh, God. I mean, just hearing that is like, is, isn't that like a nightmare for every person to be able to hear? Like, or at least for every guy to be able to hear, not to bring up. Well, is it, that seems to be what God's telling Cain, right? Yeah. No, very much so. I'm just feeling like the the like the like that would hit, right? If you're Kane and you hear that, you thought his face had fallen before. Now he has reason <laughs> for his face to fall. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically he was rooted in one place, right? That and that was the other thing, is that Cain and Abel had these very different identities. Abel was the one who was migratory because he was a shepherd, so he'd follow the sheep around. Cain, however, worked the land, which means he was rooted in place. And therefore, the punishment is the ground will no longer respond to you. Nothing will grow in place, and you shall endlessly wander. All you wanted was a place to stay, call home and to stay in one place. No more, Cain. You have to wander constantly. And, you know, that's also sort of the the, the future punishment, quote unquote, of the Jewish people. Like that's what Galus is, what Galut, what, what exile is. You had a place to call home and now you're sent off wandering through the earth and there's a restlessness because you don't have a home to come back to, right? This is speaking to me also. Like there are people who like to travel. There are people who like to stay still and Cain likes to stay put. And so there's this weird way where it's an ironic punishment. It's a specific punishment for him. And it's also giving a piece of his brother who he just ended to him. His brother was the one who would wander and now he wanders. And is there a way in which his brother is coming back to him, right? Like in a weird way, like he's keeping his brother alive almost through this punishment. Fascinating. Well, Brandon, like all great Jewish stories, we're going to have to conclude without an ending. I mean, what a fascinating discussion you've led on, on Ken and Abel. Now, the uh, concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells a story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Brandon, your years of serving as a rabbi for young people, both at a university and now at Moisha House, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? So I'll share one thing at least. I, I have a very dear friend who was in rabbinical school with me for two years, and then he transferred to another rabbinical school. He was Mechavruta. Uh, he still is a Mechavruta of mine. Um, there's just something 
we get along very well. There's something magical when we study Torah together. There's just something about we're on a similar but different enough wavelength that it becomes very fruitful and productive. So I was in New York. He was in California. So whenever one of us could vacation to the other, we'd go and see each other. It was always a delight. And I'll, I'll never forget one time I went and visited him in his apartment in California. He had this nice sort of like closet walk-in area in between the master bedroom and the rest of the apartment and you could kind of close it off at either end and get into this very narrow space and it was just this closet full of his sporing and so we're both sitting on the ground i have a safer he has a safer we're learning together like the rest of the world is sort of shut out and he just made this comment of like this right here for him in that moment he's like this is heaven and that like this is gone aiden and and it had this realization to me that i've carried with me ever since the one thing i've learned about humanity is I really don't believe that heaven and hell are places we go to after we exist. I believe that they are both right here on earth and it is our, like earth right now has the potential to be heaven or hell for us. And so much of that is based around the people we surround ourselves with and the way that we live our life, but we can have tastes of it right now in our lives. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing that I've learned about humanity, it goes back to what we were talking about. It's not about you. So many people constantly think that things that other people are doing are about them and we really need to be okay and recognize the fact that like we need to detach from that ego and um, everybody thinks it's more about them than it actually is. Yes, I think there was a great line and I think it was a Mary Gordon novel where she said, um, everyone thinks they're the center of everyone else's world. Right, right, right. And, and it, it, it ranges from, you know, when I would have students come to me and sort of say, I'm really upset about, you know, why is this person doing this? They know it upsets me and sort of like, well, maybe they're doing it and not actually, you know, maybe arguably it's bad that they're not thinking about it. You're considering you'd be like, maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe there's a different reason they're doing it. And, and when you have that conversation with a student and you say, and the student's very upset that a teacher, I presume, or a professor or another student is doing something that they think afflicts them and, and you're looking at it from the outside, are like, they're probably not thinking about you at all. What does a student say? Well, so I, I want to make sure I never just like blatantly say that as sort of like, right? Like I walk it through a series of questions after yeah, of course, of course. and get them to that realization. And usually they kind of come to like a like, oh yeah, I, I guess that makes sense, right? Like a lot of times it's really just about like, when you do these things, are you that worried about it? Or like if a student's upset or, or concerned, I don't want to show up there and have everybody looking at me. Well, when you go to a party, are you looking at everybody else or are you caught up in yourself? Like everyone else is caught up in themselves. They're not paying attention to you in that same way. That's a great point. Right. In that sort of way. Um, and I just want to throw out that the other way it comes up, like I, I remember being in staff meetings and someone will be in the middle of talking and if they see someone's face change, they'll stop. Did I say something wrong? Is something upset? Because we're so in tune with everybody and assuming that everything going on with them is a reflection of us. And sometimes it's like, no, man, I was lost in my own thought. I just made the space. It I was thinking about like, a joke I heard going. last week. Right, exactly. Right, <laughs> like We're all in our own. Maybe that's another one that I would throw out there if I could get a third, right? Like there is so much invisible life going on. There's so much internal life. Like we never get to see someone else's internal life, but it's there. And that again is the Cain and Abel story is a recognition that like nobody is really a hevel. They just appear that way. I don't know the internality that is going on, but there's something deep that is happening inside you. And, and when you have that recognition that everybody has as much complexity of thought, as much depth of character, as much, you know, just so much going on inside them as you do, that's, that's impressive. That's amazing. Uh, it's humbling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brandon, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about so many subjects uh, emanating from the great story of Cain and Abel. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk with you, Mark. Thanks for, uh, thanks for keeping me grounded. This is awesome. Thank you.
If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.